here you are in the middle of the ocean, four or five days away from Bali or Guam, and you have to try to figure out what you're going to do about this. And certainly the answer was different than what you'd find if you're in a military treatment facility or a hospital, because the answer was essentially tell the ship to get to one of those places as soon as possible. And in the meantime, we're going to use gravity to try to do what we can to limit the damage. So we want your patient to just lie supine for the four or five days it takes for the ship to transit. And if you need to, go ahead and sedate them to facilitate that. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, Wardocs has you covered. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. On this episode, we are privileged to welcome Navy Captain Dr. Joel Schofer to Wardox. Dr. Schofer received his medical degree from Hahnemann School of Medicine and trained in emergency medicine at Naval Medical Center San Diego. He went on to complete a fellowship in emergency ultrasound and later earned his MBA at the Naval Postgraduate School. He has deployed numerous times and has served in many senior leadership positions in Navy medicine, including emergency medicine specialty leader. He currently serves as a deputy chief of the medical corps at the Navy Bureau of Medicine and Surgery. You can read his full bio on wardoxpodcast.com. Welcome to Wardox. We're privileged to be joined by Captain Dr. Joel Schofer, Emergency Medicine Physician and Deputy Chief of the Medical Corps at the Navy Bureau of Medicine and Surgery. Joel, welcome to the show. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. So tell us, Dr. Schofer, what led you to military medicine and what inspired you to make it a career? Well, I think what led me to military medicine was the day that I decided to go to medical school and my father looked at me and said, well, how do you plan on paying for it? And I think I had never even thought about that question. So I had a uh, uncle who was in the Navy. My grandparents were in the Army or the National Guard. And I just started looking for ways to pay for medical school and stumbled upon the HPSB scholarship. And then what inspired me to make it a career? I, I think uh, it's meaningful to me to be in the military. I enjoy being able to change jobs every two or three years without having to start all over. I like the variety. I think I get bored easily. But to be honest, I had routed papers to get out at the 10-year mark. And I just crossed 20 a few months ago. And really what caused me to stay in was I had gotten a job as a residency director and I was deployed floating around on a ship during my Marine Expeditionary Unit deployment. And the chairman of the department who had hired me to be a residency director, which was my dream job, emailed me and told me that the contract had gone from solid to 90 days at a time. And if it was up to him, he would not get out of the Navy for this job right now. So I decided to stay in. Here we are, 20 plus years in the Navy. You completed your internship at Naval Medical Center San Diego in 2002, and then were stationed at Camp Pendleton, California, where you then deployed in support of Operation Enduring Iraqi Freedom One. Tell us about that experience and your most memorable story from that deployment. It was an amazing experience. I think if you had asked me at the time when it was 100 20 degrees in the Kuwaiti desert. I, I probably wouldn't have been a huge fan of the HPSB scholarship, but I just remember preparation. And there was, you know, your primary care doc for basically a battalion of Marines, and you've got a lot of things to get ready before you deploy. So I remember there were a lot of 
early mornings and long nights and wasn't the best dietary choice, but I think I, a lot of my dinners were a 32 ounce Mountain Dew while driving home. And my most memorable story, uh, that's something I talk about a lot was something that turned out not to be true. I, I certainly remember being in Kuwait, being in a tent where they were showing us aerial shots of the weapons of mass destruction, where we were going to probably get hit with nerve gas. And I had all the confidence in the world and the gear I had been issued and my chemical suit and my gas mask, my mop gear, as they call it. But really that confidence only extended to if I happened to be standing still or by myself while wearing the gear. And I just remember thinking, wow, if this really happens, it is going to get interesting because I'm going to have patience to treat and I'm just not sure moving around in that kind of chaos, what it's really going to be like. As we all know now, it turned out to not be weapons of mass destruction or nerve gas, but certainly a very memorable experience to be told this is where you'll probably get gassed. Do you practice, you know, donning the chemical gear when you were in country to prepare for that? And did people realize, wow, this is not as easy as it sounds on paper? Well, we certainly did plenty of it before we got to Kuwait. I have been in the gas chamber probably four times in my life, a number of times leading up to that. You know, until you get into the desert where it's 120 degrees and you're in Mop 4, that's when it really dawns on you, wow. And I think just seeing what they portrayed as proof it was going to happen. We were going to get a hit. That you don't start to think through the, the realities of, of being in Mop 4 for a prolonged period of time. I really had confidence in the gear, but it was just going to question if we ever had to enter that environment, what it was really going to be like and what I would be asked to do. All it takes is, is one seizing patient to, you know, hit your mask, break the seal, and you're a casualty. You had just finished your internship and, you know, basically a general medical officer, and now you're the doctor for this unit. Did you feel like you were prepared, or did you feel, you know, a little bit uncertain of the skills that would be required? Well, I think one of the skills, uh, if you're going to stay in the military and thrive, is to try to focus on the things you can control. And, you know, I'd studied as hard as I could and I learned as much medicine as I could during my internship. But I don't, I don't think, I think no matter what you do, there's always going to be some doubt as to whether you're prepared. I'll tell you that another memorable story from that experience. And again, keep in mind, I'm a general medical officer, GMO with, you know, just a transitional year internship under my belt. And I'll remember, you know, we, we were in Iraq and we pulled up to a, to a stop. And I remember the Marine colonel those six coming up to me and banging on the ambulance and going, Doc, we've got patients for you out here. And these were really the first casualties I had encountered. And for a lot of my deployment, I was stationed with, you know, a role two facility with ER docs or surgeons. But at this point, we didn't have that with us. And I found eight patients along the road. They were Iraqi, most of them suffering from gunshot wounds of some type. And it was just me and a couple of corpsmen. And we did the best we could, but, um, you know, we were a role one facility, essentially offering primary care with some basic emergent care. And like I said, we didn't have any surgical assets or any of my emergency physician friends with me. So we did the best we could. I mean, it was a, it was a pretty challenging time, definitely something I will never forget. So the Navy traditionally had a process of having everyone complete the GMO, general medical officer assignment prior to their residency training. But this is now largely shifted. Tell us why the Navy had that mindset and what led to the change to completing residency directly following the internship. 
Well, I wouldn't say that it's shifted. We're, we're just starting the process, and we envision it's going to be a five-year transition. Looking into this, it was the National Defense Authorization Act of 1999. Draft version said that they were going to require getting rid of GMOs and making everybody residency trained. And then it never came out in the final. But the Army and the Air Force did this transition largely shortly thereafter, whereas the Navy stuck it out. And now here we are 20 years later, and the civilian ACGME, you know, our accrediting body for our graduate medical education programs, just becoming less and less tolerant of our current interrupted system of internship, GMO, residency. The transition to straight through GME will start with this upcoming GME cycle, and we're expecting it'll proceed over about a five-year period. After you uh, came back from your deployment, you uh, completed your emergency medicine residency at Naval Medical Center San Diego, and then in 2010, you deployed with the 15th Marine Expeditionary Unit aboard the USS Pearl Harbor. What does a doc do with a Marine Expeditionary Unit, and what's it like to be a doctor aboard a ship? So my first deployment was, you know, as a GMO, but now the second one that you're talking about, I was an emergency physician. And the Marine Expeditionary Unit is, you go out with an amphibious readiness group, uh, three amphibious ships that have a couple thousand Marines on them. You're essentially out there just in case. And you are the role to medical support. Uh, we basically had a shock trauma platoon. You know, we had two ER docs, about 20 corpsmen, and we were going to be the ER for uh, any operations that went on with the Marines. And being on a ship, like I had mentioned to you guys already, I, I had decided already at that time I was going to be getting out of the Navy. And I, I did think that it was my turn to deploy. And uh, I did think that it would be a shame to have been in the Navy and have never been on a ship. But deploying with the Marines on a ship is a distinct, different experience than being ship's company because you're, you're kind of along for the ride. Now, we obviously helped out in medical and took care of people and, and helped out the GMO that was on the ship as much as we could. But there was a lot of working out, a lot of eating, and a lot of movie watching in between uh, our various stops where we would perform exercises or do training. Tell us about your most memorable story from that deployment. It's unique being on a, on a ship. We frequently get, especially in emergency medicine, we catch a lot of flack because a lot of our patients are young and healthy, quote, not sick, end quote. Weird things happen. And being deployed on a ship, you're, you're just placed in unique situations. For example, something that's pretty simple and easy to handle becomes a real problem. We're halfway in between Guam and Hawaii, probably four or five days from each, and a young enlisted member pulling a box off a shelf and slipped and hit him in the eye. And, you know, I had an ultrasound unit on board and he had visual loss and I ultrasounded it and it had pretty clear retinal detachment, pretty large, visualized on ultrasound. But here you are in the middle of the ocean, four or five days away from Bai or Guam, and you have to try to figure out what you're going to do about this. And certainly the answer was different than what you'd find if you're in a military treatment facility or a hospital, because the answer was essentially... Tell the ship to get to one of those places as soon as possible. And in the meantime, we're going to use gravity to try to do what we can to limit the damage. So we want your patient to just lie supine for the four or five days it takes for the ship to transit. And if you need to, go ahead and sedate them to facilitate that. 
So, you know, no ophthalmologist, no laser surgery. Go ahead and lay on your back for the next four or five days. What was the course of action that was recommended by the remote ophthalmology team? Which is pretty interesting. How'd the guy do? We got the person off the ship when we hit Guam. So I, I never heard anything beyond that. But I, I think you just you just tend to run into a very strange thing when you're at sea and you get put in interesting dilemmas. For example, another another guy got meningitis while we we're out at sea and and i knew i mean he had everything headache fever neck stiffness and oh by the way this isn't the first time this has happened to me so of course you're like you can't do a lumbar puncture you know or a spinal tap you, you, you even if you could get fluid you you wouldn't really have any analyzers to be able to analyze it to see if, if it's consistent with meningitis and and you've got this wacky story about it it's happened to me before and turns out the guy had basically shingles of his meninges, which I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, is called Malaray's syndrome. I'd never heard of it before. But here I was in the middle of the ocean dealing with it without the usual tools that are available to it. I think just being at sea presents interesting opportunities to you that, that'll challenge you medically. One of the interesting tools you have created is mccareer.org a blog and website that you have dedicated to assisting other Navy Medical Corps officers in helping and advancing their career in Navy medicine. What inspired you to create this website and where do Navy docs go to get answers about their careers? Well, what inspired me to create it was self-preservation and self-sanity. I took a job as what we call a detailer in the Navy, what you guys in other services would probably call an assignments officer. And I had been in the job for about a week and I pretty shortly thereafter realized that I was going to get those same questions over and over again. And I wasn't just going to keep typing the same emails or I was going to go insane. And I also realized that the answers to all these questions were out there, but they were all in different places. I mean, there were probably 20 different places you'd have to look in order to try to get the answers to questions. So really what I did was I said, well, you know, I think if you just try to help people out in your career, things work out. So I'm going to bite the bullet and I'm going to try to create a centralized repository for information so that when people need to get questions answered, there's a one-stop shop. It really started as just a centralized place to go read what has become called Joel Schofer's promo prep, which was a Word document that I put together to tell people how to get their record ready for a promotion board. But then it became uh, the fit rep prep to, to tell people, put everything in one document to tell them how to write their fitness reports. And then it just became a place where I would post news that people who are in military medicine would find interesting. And it's just become quite a thing. I mean, it's been six years and I'm a, I looked in preparation for this podcast. I'm about to cross 970,000 page views. Whenever I post something, it goes to approximately 1,600 people. Is there a common mistake that young physicians make earlier in their career that may be avoidable? And is there any mistake that's specific to military physicians that you don't see in non-military physicians? I think the key error is to not pay attention to this stuff early on. Because when you're young and you're an 03 or an 04, you don't have a whole lot of things that have happened. And if you can jump on your officer record and figure out how it works early on, 
then you can get it up to date, get it accurate. And incrementally, you can just make your life easier down the road. Whereas if you wait, it becomes, you know, maybe it's pretty easy sometimes to promote early in your career. And so you don't really focus on it too much. And then you wait till you've been in 10 or 15 years. You've got all these things you've got to try to get into your record and you've got to try to fix them. For your last question, one of the things that's unique, at least in the Navy, and it's probably similar in the other services, is that one of the hugest hangups to try to get promoted is getting your record to accurately reflect the fact that you're board certified. Because the only way that the board promotion board knows is that you have your subspecialty codes accurate and one of them, if not more, any of them you're board certified and ends in a K. And I've been on a number of boards and every single one, there's a huge debate that erupts about one or more docs debating whether the person is board certified or not, because it's a huge milestone to achieve in your career and get promoted. But there'll be a record that doesn't have a subspecialty code that ends with a K. Therefore, their record is not, does not indicate that they're board certified, and it'll just turn into this huge stumbling block. And because people in promotion boards can't really talk about things afterwards that occur there, it, it could be something as little as you're missing one little letter, and that's why you didn't get promoted. And so that's something that you would address in your blog on how to get promoted, how to make sure that you're not missing stuff. Is that correct? Yeah. So that's what the promo prep is for, which has been downloaded like over 10,000 times. It essentially just walks you through. It's like 10 chapters long, and it just walks you through in simple terms, how to update your record. And one of them is your specialty code. You know, it explains in that chapter that 16P0 is emergency medicine. And 16P0K means you're board certified. Versus J means you're not. And you're board eligible. Something simple like that is a stumbling block for people. And it's, it's unique to the Navy. What would you say is the one topic that you've covered in your blog that you found most helpful for yourself? I think the thing that I do with the blog is I um, try to keep things very open and transparent. You know, I, I think it's very easy to get frustrated in your career because you feel like you don't know what's going on. Uh, there's a lot, uh, especially right now with kind of the push and pull uh, between Congress and the services when it comes to, you know, are we going to cut military medicine or are we not? And kind of the downstream effects of that, whether it be special pays or opportunity to promote. I know certainly there's a lot of angst about that uncertainty. So I think what's been most helpful to me is just make sure that people have the information that's available. Uh, even a lot of times the information is uncertain too, but I, I think you just want to gather as much information as you can. And I just think that by, by centralizing it and paying attention to all these different sites uh, where I get all this information and, and collating it on the website, that's been tremendously helpful to me. So from 2015 to 2016, you served as the commander of the Joint Medical Group and Joint Task Force surgeon at Guantanamo Bay. And you told us ahead of time that you ended up serving as a commanding officer at one rank lower than what one might expect, which is something rare in the Navy. How did those circumstances come about? And tell us about that experience at Guantanamo Bay. I went there as the deputy, sent myself there as a detailer. You know, one of the major benefits of being an assignments officer or detailer is you get to write your orders after that. And most people send themselves to Rota, Spain or San Diego, California or Hawaii. And I sent myself to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, which may make me uh, unique. And, and really, the reason was because I had moved my family for the seventh time and my 13-year-old daughter was very unhappy in Tennessee, and I was going to have to geobatch and live there alone the last year of my order. So I, I really 
figured, well, it's my time to deploy soon. So I might as well just do what I can. And by taking those orders, I got to move my family back to Virginia. So I went there and really the circumstances of that happening, you know, I was there as the deputy as an 05, but really it was that the American Psychological Association started to put out um, some ethical challenges to psychologists participating in detainee operation. And so at the time, the commander, a friend of mine, was, was a psychologist. So General Kelly was the Southcom commander. He removed all the psychologists. And he just looked at me from across the table and said, Doc, that means you're in charge. You got this? And I said, sure. <laughs> and I and I was later told that the, the Navy Surgeon General was was asking questions like, who's this 05 that's in charge down in Guantanamo Bay? Can you get me their their bio? And, and so I provided that and and yeah, I got to I got to be the commanding officer of the joint medical group when I wasn't supposed to for about seven months. So tell us about that experience being the commanding officer in Guantanamo Bay. What were some unique aspects of that? assignment? Well, I think it, it was unique to get that early exposure to what it's like to be in command. I always thought that it was something I was striving for one day, but to get, you know, a little six or seven month taste to see if it's something you really like, I think was tremendously beneficial because I came away from it with a positive experience. Just hits you right away. As soon as you're in command is people are looking at you differently. And, you know, you just suddenly start paying attention to little things that maybe as a, as a doctor, you just weren't all that concerned about, like, what does my uniform really look like? Maybe I should try to get in a little better shape. Uh, and I remember I would say things that previously wouldn't really have a huge impact, but now because I said something or suggested something, people were going to take the ball and run with it. And it, it was, it was now a policy or a decision. And the first couple of times that happened, I, I was like, wow, I, I really got to be careful here. You know, this is a completely different ball game. So tell us about the medical care that you were delivering when you were assigned at Guantanamo Bay, you and the other physicians there. Well, it's definitely unique. What I would usually describe to a lot of the congressional staffers that would come down there, because it was really high level. I mean, we got to brief the, I got to brief the chairman of the Joint Chief Staff, and we would get constant visits from congressmen and women and their staffers. And so what we were essentially doing was the way I would explain it is we're, we're running a small community hospital for the detainees and we're doing everything we can to provide that level of care that meets the standard of care for them when they need it. And I was mostly in a leadership role, so I didn't provide a lot of direct care, although I did take call. Experiencing it firsthand there's a lot of a lot of rumors that float around about that place and maybe that this care provided is substandard and it, it's really opposite. They really receive amazing medical care. And I, I think people that provide it should take heart in that. I mean, I think it's an honorable mission and I think we're, we do the best we humanely and provide the same level of care that we provide anybody else. I saw in your bio that you also served as a NATO rep for the United States on an emergency medicine expert panel. That sounds like a pretty unique experience. What was that job about and what did they want you to be doing? There's a whole bunch of NATO committees for medicine that essentially get doled out to the services through the office of the Joint Chiefs and, and the Joint Staff Surgeon. And I just lucked out that emergency medicine goes to the Navy. And so when I was named the special leader, what you guys would call the consultant, I got to be on that committee. 
And so for three or four years, I would go to NATO committee, NATO meetings twice a year. We would work on policies for NATO. Uh, I've been to the old and the new NATO headquarters. I've traveled all over the place, done some amazing, amazing things. Uh, met a lot of good friends, uh, made a lot of international contacts and gotten exposed to a whole different way of doing things that oh, at times I would think was not particularly relevant, but certainly had the potential to be extremely relevant uh, if conflict would, would flare up involving a NATO country. So I, I think it's, it was a unique experience and something that not a lot of people get to do. You also served as the emergency medicine specialty leader and consultant to the U.S. Navy Surgeon General. Where does the Navy put emergency medicine physicians in support of combat operations and what does the next 10 years bring to the specialty? I think we put them everywhere, essentially. Got people forward deployed with small units operating out of their backpack in support of special operations teams and got people all the way back at, you know, on hospital ships and roll three soldies, roll four. So I think we're, we're best utilized throughout the continuum of care. The next 10 years is interesting. I think the biggest challenge for Navy emergency medicine right now is really manning. We've had a huge increased demand signal for our services without much increase in our, in our training pipeline because we had already kind of been maxing out our GME opportunities. So over the last six or seven years, we've had a huge growth and essentially the denominator of our manning equation, you know, more and more billets or jobs getting created and calling for our unique skill set. We don't have a tremendous ability to ramp up the force generation for emergency positions in the Navy. So you told us a little bit about your family. Looking forward to, you know, maybe 75, 100 years from now, your great, great grandchildren. What is something that you would want them to know if they listen to this podcast about your career in Navy medicine? I think what I would want people to know is that I would honestly hope that they never had to do what I do, which is go to war. But that if you do, when you're there, I think just realize that all, all you can do is what you can do. And you can make a huge impact uh, to at the individual level. Uh, just do your best to do your job to your the fullest extent that you can and realize that you know, you're going to find great meaning in the fact that you're, you're there supporting uh, the men and women that are there with you. We recently did a bonus segment for the Army Medical Corps officers on professional military education. We'd like to get a little bit of that today for the Navy Medical Corps active duty and reserve physicians. So tell us what is the basic officer course for Navy physicians in their professional military education? And what is the point of that basic course? And when should it be completed? we've had a little bit of a transition. We had something that was called BIMDOC, Basic Medical Department Officer Course, was, which was essentially a online course that was an introduction to military medicine that I know I did when I was a lieutenant or 03. And then you would later go to what we called AMDOC, the Advanced Medical Department Officer Course, which was something that there was these, there were the rumors out there which persist that you have to go to this in order to promote, which really isn't true. It's just a good course, which is why we encourage people to go to it. But um, the demand signal for it was greater than the seats we have. And so you would probably get that when you were an 05 uh, 
up for 06 or potentially four up for 05. We would really try to target giving it to people who are about to come in for zone promotion or get significant leadership jobs. But with the Navy's shift to readiness and moving more of the uh, MTF management to the Defense Health Agency, we've repivoted those courses. So now BIMDOC is being revised. It's not available yet. It's called the Basic Readiness Officer course and AROC, uh, which I actually did this afternoon. Uh, we went to did our did our couple of hours at AROC. The Advanced Readiness Officer course is, is something that's offered now. So it's different focus on readiness, and it is targeted for the similar audience of generally fours to 05s, but uh, you definitely find some 06s in there as well. So both of those courses sound pretty much medically specific. Is that correct? Yes, they definitely are. When would you do professional military education that is the same as a line Navy officer? We have been placing more and more focus on having people complete what's called Joint Professional Military Education, or JPME. And there's two levels. There's JPME 1 and JPME 2. Historically, not a lot of medical corps officers or physicians did JPME. Some did, but the overall majority didn't. But as, as we're trying to, to make it so that every medical corps officer feels like they are operationally relevant. We're encouraging people to develop both a clinical specialty as well as an operational specialty. And part of that pipeline is going to be the expectation that people have done JPME-1, which is a program you can do in person like I did, or you can do it online. And it, it can be done in essentially a, about a year if you do it online. You can do any service. It doesn't matter. A lot of people do the Air Force uh, because it's it's easier to get into. The Navy revamped theirs, and there's kind of a one-year waiting list right now to get into it. But we are encouraging people to do that by the time they're up for 06, but with the expectation down the line that you know, a gradual transition will be that they will have done it by the time they're in 05. Because by the time they're in 05, they will have established their operational specialty, and probably part of that will have been doing JPN1. And then JPME 2 is, I've also done that. There's really no way to do JPME 2, which is designed for the more senior military officers. Again, is not medical specific at all. It's, it's line, line training and joint, obviously. And, and the only way to do that is to do that in person in some way. So you have to go to the war college or a service college, do the other services as well, or you can go to Shorter version, which is 10 weeks, that, that one doesn't get you a master's degree. It does JPME too. Uh, that's what I've done. And then there's other folks that go for the in-residence education approximately a year, and they get a master's degree as well as JPME too. And because you have to do it in person, it, it's really tough. The opportunities are nowhere near as vast as they are for JPME 1. My boss, um, the chief of our medical corps, likes to say there's really only about 5% of the physicians that he needs to do senior executive and operational roles. And for the overwhelming majority of medical corps officers in the Navy, their primary role should be clinical. So I would say in an optimal world down the line, our expectation would be that just about every medical corps officer has done JPME 1, but probably only about 5% ever get to do JPME 2. What are some unique military education courses or opportunities that are available to Navy Medical Corps physicians that may not be available to those of us who are in other services? Unique to the Navy. Well, I know that the Marine Corps has some pretty awesome training. They do cold weather medicine. There's mountain medicine. We certainly have some unique training 
that's related to a physician obtaining their operational specialty, like I've talked about. I mean, you know, if you want to be an undersea medical officer and get trained in dive medicine, no better place to do that than in the Navy. Or you want to be trained in surface medicine, that, the Navy, you know, that's where you're going to do that. Uh, you want to be trained in the Fleet Marine Force or Marine Corps uh, medical, unique medical training. Again, there's only one place you're going to get that, and that's in the Marines. I think obviously there's uh, other services you can you can get yourself uh, trained as a flight surgeon, but I, I think the Navy really excels when it comes to the training that's offered by the Marine Corps, as well as our, our unique surface and undersea community. Now you have a MBA and are a certified physician executive. How are those credentials important for a military physician? And does the Navy support that training? Well, I would put that training in the 5%. And I would say that the expectation, if you were going to enter into the executive medicine pathway in the Navy, was that you would, if at all possible, have some kind of advanced management training. The specifics of that are probably not as important, whether it's an MBA or a master's in healthcare administration or, or something similar. I tried to get that because I thought that that was going to help me compete for senior leadership jobs down the line. And the MBA I did was with the Naval Postgraduate School. Uh, they had a distance learning program that you would do for two years. It was free except for books. You just essentially had to apply and get in. And then for really less than $1,000 over a two-year time period, you'd, you'd be able to get your MBA. Subsequently, they've, they've, they've paused that program, and now they're reevaluating how they use in-residence education. So I think that the options to get a master's degree uh, or an MBA or similar degree right now are, are in flux because they've gotten rid of that program. But the master's in strategic studies that you can get from going to a war college definitely still exists. So you missed that hardship tour in Monterey, California, and did it all online? Yes, sir. Did it uh, did it be a distance learning? And when I was stationed at Naval Medical Center Portsmouth, so I would go to a uh, the Joint Forces Staff College in Norfolk for class once a week, eight hours a day. It was a Tuesday for me, and we had people in all sorts of cohorts, all the all the major fleet concentration areas throughout the Navy, and, and we did that two years. We did get to go to Monterey uh, for one trip the first week of the degree because we had to do a class in the management of teams. So we did that on, but yeah, you're right. I didn't get to live the, the Monterey dream for a year or two in residence. Is there any advice you'd give to Navy Medical Corps officers that might be listening as they work their way through their military career? Yeah, I really think that they should take a solid look at the updated Medical Corps career pathway because we, we updated that a couple of years ago when Admiral Hancock uh, took over as the Corps Chief. It is available on mccareer.org, including a screencast where I go through the PowerPoint slide that summarizes it, because I think it is one PowerPoint slide to rule them all. You know, it is a basic framework that should allow you to march through your career and figure out what the next options are that you should consider and the things you should try to achieve, like JPME one or two or master's degree, what jobs you should focus on. And then knowing that it's tough to get everything with all sorts of different specialties onto one PowerPoint slide, you know, we have a second slide created for each specialty that was created by their specialty leader or consultant to really get a little more specific for them. So I really think that 
nowadays when people come to me with career questions, which they do all the time, whether it's because of my current job as the deputy core chief or because of the blog or both, a lot of times what I'm doing is pulling up that one slide and talking to them about what they've done and where they need to go. And we've really tried to make it easy for people to walk through. So I, I really think they should go to the go to that and check it out. We've been speaking with Captain Joel Schofer on Wardock's podcast. Joel, thank you so much for sharing your experiences and insights with us. It's been great. I, I hope I wish you guys the best and uh, I really appreciate being asked to come on the podcast. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Wardocs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on our website, wardocspodcast.com. That's WarDocsPodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, WarDocs has you covered. Spread the word.